Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Emily Oster is a professor of economics at Brown University and a parenting expert who focuses on the data behind choices in pregnancy and parenting. Her upcoming book, The Family Firm, is a must-read about parenting during early school years. Emily also became quite the polarizing force in the school reopening debate of 2020. After compiling data from schools in 47 states, she estimated very low rates of COVID-19 infection among the 200,000 students she studied. The study became the catalyst for her article in The Atlantic titled, Schools Aren't Super Spreaders, a piece that received a tidal wave of immense praise and harsh criticism from parents and public figures alike. Look, at Mind Buddy Green, we're not ones to comment on policy, but we do believe in listening to nuanced perspectives. Whether you align with Emily or not, she presents thought-provoking data points around the future of education, especially with our new challenge of the Delta Stream. And I am beyond excited to have her on the show today. Emily, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we are beyond thrilled to have you here. My wife is a super fan. She's turned me into a super fan. And so we're just so excited to have you on the podcast. Well, I'm excited. I love, I love a good podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. <laughs> so you certainly don't need to write a book, but you wrote a book and it's an excellent book. It's called The Family Firm. So I'm going to get to the, the, the why. Talk about why this book. So I had written two earlier books about pregnancy and about sort of parenting little kids. And then I was unsure about writing an, another book. It's a lot of work to write a book. You have to write all the pages and everything. But, and I was not sure that I had something to say about bigger kids because a lot of my focus is on data and thinking about what we learn from data and so on. And as your kids get older and their needs get more differentiated, it is in some ways much harder to learn from data because your questions aren't almost ever the same as everyone else's questions and the data kind of comes in little pieces. But as I parented older kids, I kind of realized that a lot of the tools that we were using in my household to try to make it work, to try to make that sort of logistics and the complicated questions of parenting work, that I thought that many of those tools might be useful to other people. And they sort of came together in a book that I think is in some ways a little bit different than the other books, but but I, I hope is sort of broadly helpful as people kind of think about this um, parenting journey that we're all seemingly on. Well, it is very different and it is very helpful. So bravo, uh, mission accomplished, so to speak. Uh, it's hard. And in terms of you talk about a family's mission, and I found that very appealing as a mission-driven entrepreneur. I said, huh, I never really thought about our family like this, but this actually really resonates with me. So can you talk a little bit more about a family's mission? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that a lot of the pit, like sort of idea behind the book is that when we are doing things like in our business life, in our sort of professional life, it's common to have these, just think like, okay, what's my mission? What am I trying to accomplish with this? Like, where am I, where are we trying to, to go? But as a family, you, you don't always have those conversations. You don't always sort of sit down and say like, hey, what are the things that are the most important to me? What am I trying to accomplish? I think the reason that it is so valuable to, to sort of sit down and talk about it is twofold. You know, one, if you don't know where you're trying to go, it's hard to get there. And in many pieces of parenting, we are parenting with someone else, whether it's a partner or 
somebody who's no longer our partner or our some yet third person. You know, people have different configurations, but it's often more than one adult. And I think that some of the conflict that we have in our family lives arises from not having had some of these bigger picture and like admittedly harder conversations at the beginning and not surfacing the disagreements, but just wait for the disagreements to surface themselves. And I think that by surfacing them on purpose, there it's kind of a little easier to, it's more possible to work through them. And so, so much of the book is about how we make better decisions. And decision fatigue is something I experience. I think we've all experienced, it's real. And so how do you think about the most important decisions, prioritizing decisions as a family? How do you think about that? So I think about, I think a, a huge piece of how I think about this is moving decisions up in time to a place where you can make them once, make like a set of decisions once, and then use that going forward. So you sort of make the later decisions more quickly. And so I think sometimes when I'm sort of writing this, a lot of what I'm suggesting to people is, okay, you should sit down and think about what is your family's schedule gonna look like? Are you going to have family dinner every night? Are you going to have it some of the time? Are you going to, what are you gonna feed your kids? How much are they gonna sleep? What kind of schools are they gonna do? And really like sitting down and thinking about that, people are like, oh my God, like how could I, how could I, there's so many decisions. It's so much, it's so much work. And it does kind of pull a lot of that work up front. But the thing I think we forget is that if you don't pull that work up front, then you're making that decision every day. Every day you're like, ah, oh, what are we going to do about this? But if you've made it up front, you've made that decision and then you don't need to remake it every day. And I think that we often make the mistake in these decision-making spaces of being afraid to take the time to make the decision right and instead making it wrong, but very frequently and allowing it to sort of take up all of our mind space all the time. And so I'm trying to push people to be a little more deliberate and move some of the work to a different time. Well, and then you become anxious as a parent and you say, oh, wait, I didn't do this. I feel like I'm not doing a good job. And then the kid feels that, then the kid potentially feels anxious and becomes kind of this vicious cycle. But at the same time, on the flip side, how do you navigate, you know, if you are so organized, uh, how to do it in a way so that it, it, there's no burden on, on the family or the child, if you will. Like if something goes wrong, like it, so you take it to an extreme, like is there a balance between a little too regimented where, oh my God, this didn't happen. Then it sets off. We were going to do pickup over there. Now this pickup didn't happen. We can't do that. Then the meal. And then, oh my God, the day's blown up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I, our family, as you might imagine from reading the book, is fairly is fairly regimented. And so one of the things we sort of struggle with is like, where can we have space for more spontaneity? It, it's okay to sometimes do something that isn't part of our like typical daily routine. And I think that the, yeah, there's a, there's a question of how do you fit that into the, fit that into the space. I do think that, um, that having the routine is it can actually be helpful for then sort of thinking about when you're going to go outside it, because that is then more deliberate. And you've kind of gone outside it in a way that like you were recognizing that you were sort of purposely doing something different and doing it for, for a reason. So one of the things I love is that you talk about the importance of the family meal. So could, could you elaborate a little bit more about the family meal and, and segue 
to, to how we think. I think anyone listening, our audience, if they have a child, they're thinking about what is a healthy diet? What does nutrition look like for their kids? How do we define it? How do we execute on that? And it is sort of centered around the family meal, if you will. So can you elaborate about that? Yeah. So I think the family meal, the idea that you should eat dinner with your kids sort of takes on like almost this kind of mythical space for, for some people. And it, it also really bifurcates because if this is something that you do with your family, it becomes such a key part of your day both in terms of having to produce it and then having it and just a lot of things get organized around it. So I think for people who who do that, it becomes like, that's really important and central. And then I think people who aren't doing it are sort of like, why is this so, why is this so important? But the data, you know, when they, we sort of come down to the data on that, it's hard to separate out what are the actual impacts on the fa- of the family meal on, on kids because the families who have routine family meals are different in many ways than families that do not. But I will say in, in correlations, the effects, the sort of size of the impacts of family meals on some of the outcomes we care about with kids, like anxiety and depression, performance in school, other things about how happy they are, um, their relationships with their parents, those effects are all really big. So I think even with the concerns that I always raise about causality and is it really this is causing those outcomes, those correlations are so consistent and strong that it's hard to that it's hard to dismiss them. And I think that it, you know, it does illustrate the importance of some version of that time. And then I think we can get into sort of interesting questions around, well, is it, how much of it is about that time being around food and how much of it is just like protected time? You know, if you said our, instead of the family meal, we're going to have the family sit around for an hour and chat, but when we have tea, like maybe that would accomplish some of those connections. Of course, since we're all supposed to be eating, there is sort of something helpful about having it around the meal. But One of the things I sort of urge people in the book is to think about, okay, it doesn't necessarily have to be dinner all the time. Like, could it be breakfast? Could it be something else? Like, could you get some of those benefits, even if the kind of dinner altogether piece of this doesn't necessarily fit in the other aspects of your family's life? And so in terms of children eating healthy, is that the most effective tool to get them to eat healthy? And then how do we think about what healthy means like is it eating with them is it eating broccoli specifically how do you think about that yeah i think it's hard i mean nutrition you know this as well as i do like nutrition science (laughs) is really limited like if you sort of said like how can i identify which are the good foods there's a little bit of like i know it when i see it aspect of diet i could put up in front of you two different things and i bet you could tell me which of those do i think is a healthy diet but then really like digging into well how good is the evidence behind broccoli versus potatoes or whatever, like that evidence is is really weak. I think we do know some important things about how kids develop tastes. One of them is that a lot of tastes are formed in childhood. So kids, kids, I like to refer to this as like people like the food they grew up with. Like kids who grow up in a place where there's a lot of rice, they learn to like rice. Kids who grow up in a place with a lot of wheat, they learn to like wheat. And that's something we see very consistently. And it translates to if you want your kid to eat a certain way, you have a lot of opportunities to scaffold that when they are young. And so that is something that you want to take advantage of. But I would frame it as you want to think about what's the diet you're trying to to sort of communicate and then think about communicating that by serving that set of food in whatever eating environment your kids are in. 
And then how do you think about kids being kids, so to speak, when it comes to food, whether it's we're in the summer, popsicles and ice cream, mac and cheese, like those kid foods, well, adults like them too. I like them also, but how do you think about treats, if you will, and kids? And So, I mean, I think I'll tell you how I, how I tend to think about this, which is, which is to sort of have some balance. I think when we see it, the evidence largely suggests that if you tell a kid they can never eat ice cream then the ice cream becomes this like forbidden like love. And they don't learn about the idea of like having two bites of ice cream. And they kind of, when faced with a giant ice cream, they'll just eat the entire thing and, and go for more because it's such an unusual like opportunity, right? So I think that there is a place there for doing a little bit of that so kids don't sort of find it to be something they want to overdo. At the same time, one of the things I think often happens that we sort of see in the data is that at some point early on in kind of toddlerhood, like around two or three, kids get less hungry. So it's just like a thing that happens. Like they need more calories. And at some point, I think usually around two, your kid just kind of needs less calories than they did before. And so they will eat less. And that's fine. They don't need as many calories. They aren't eating quite as much as they did as they did before. Sometimes they'll get a little bit pickier. A common response to that is to start providing more of not so much ice cream, but things like mac and cheese, nuggets, which kids will more frequently eat because people people like those things. Like they're they're easier flavors for a lot of for a lot of us. And that can exacerbate some of these pickiness aspects because kids learn very fast if you try to serve them fish and they say, I don't want that, and then you give them mac and cheese, they learn, okay, well that's a good way to get mac and cheese. And so I think that's a dynamic that I'm always trying to be very careful about that sort of like not offering a default that then sort of eliminates the opportunity to try on foods. They're smart little creatures at a young age. They're so with smart, right? They're like, they, <laughs> they got your number, like they got it right there. You can do things one time and then my kids will be like, aren't we doing it that way every time? I'm like, no, that was one time. Mom. <laughs> So, you know, as a parent, I think at the highest level, we all want the same thing. We want good, kind, happy, healthy little humans. And I'm curious, what does the data say? What are the non-negotiables? Because there's just so much we can focus on. And you outline a lot of this in the book, but like at the highest levels, like if we're prioritizing here are the things we should really focus on as parents and as kids get older, peer groups, both sense of belonging. We'll talk about that. There are, there are outside factors, but as parents, like what are the things we should really focus on if that's the outcome we want? You know, I think that most of what we know would just say that being attentive and paying attention to them is kind of a huge amount of this thing. And that there isn't that beyond that, there's not some super secret, some super secret thing for making your kids or making your kids happy or making them them not happy that there's these this sort of like it almost like loving them it, although that's sort of facile and sometimes it's very hard to do but but that that those that kind of attention and just thinking carefully about things that's it's kind of it's kind of the whole it's kind of the whole baseline thing so if I think about <laughs> to like this past year with a lot of parents, unfortunately, working from home, I envision this happened to us where we work together. We have two little kids. Someone's crying for attention. We're like trying to manage it on a Zoom call, a company. And it's like, sorry, you know, I'm ignoring you. 
put on the TV. That's like the worst thing you can do is ignore a child. I don't think that's it. No, not no. like that. I don't mean like that. I don't mean like you have to be attentive in every moment. No, I just meant like in general, thinking about your kids and like conveying that there's important moments for them. But I think they also they, like there's, I sort of talk a little bit about these different parenting philosophies in the, in the book, but I think there's a strong pitch for like, actually some independence is sort of also really important. And your kid knowing that like, there's like a fine balance between your kid knowing that like you're there for them, but also understanding that like, actually some of the time they need to play by themselves and do Legos and you're not literally there for them every second. And that by the way, gets like, changes shape, but is equally important as they get older when you find they need to know that you're there to help them scaffold like their responsibilities, but you are not there to remember their soccer shoes every single day because that's their job. And if they forget them, then they will become an adult who forgets their soccer shoes like me. That's good because I was starting to be, to feel quite guilty about March and April last year. So many screens. Screen time, whatever. It's all screen good. Time. Barbie, you want the Barbie like... spy, spy house video? Absolutely. I'll buy you that movie. It's great. Sesame Street, Daniel the Tiger. So, so much great program. This is all educational. I would tell Colleen, this is so good. I'm learning something. It's fantastic. Your kids probably are probably just geniuses now because of the Daniel Tiger. I mean, Daniel Tiger, that guy's. <laughs> I'm not even going to get into Paw Patrol, but uh, <laughs> so coming out of COVID, this is something we've thought a lot about as parents, and, and we're both highly educated. You know, I went to Columbia, Colleen, my wife went to Stanford. It's like we've been through the machine, if you will. And we think of our kids and we wonder what's school going to be like for them? And I do think there's been, and this has been written about, a little bit, people are rethinking school, whether it's pod structure, whether it's like, there are lots of different ways people have gone with this. What's your take? People say that it's accelerated, COVID has accelerated trends and, and school is one of them. What, what's your take on where higher education is? And I know college is different than the school system for elementary and high school, but what's your take in general? What school is going to look like in five to 10 years? So I think broadly, probably pretty similar to how it did before. I mean, I think that sort of big changes like that are going to be, are going to be slow. What I do think, particularly in some of the sort of spaces that you're talking about, uh, is that schools are going to move. I think we're going to see much more focus on like mental health kind of stuff than we had. Uh, and I think that was, there was a trend in that direction already. And I think it's become even, I think it's going to become even more extreme because I think what a lot of people realized over the course of the pandemic was, yes, there were learning losses, of course, like it's not that easy to learn on, on Zoom, but actually for some kinds of things, you can learn some of those things on the computer. We can sort of scaffold that kind of, that kind of learning outside of a sort of social school environment. Maybe we didn't do a great job of it, but it's not that it's like impossible to, to do that. But that what's really difficult and that's almost impossible to scaffold on Zoom is learning how to interact with other people and learning how to work through problems and sort of work through the socio-emotional pieces of your lived experience. I think we're going to see schools lean into curricular focus on those things. And so not just try to make people be nice to each other in the playground, but actually try to teach them tools for like, how can you work through conflict? How can you develop empathy? How can you deal with anxiety? Like whatever that is, I think we're going to see schools way lean into that. I, for me, I think that's one of the biggest things we'll see right away. 
You think they'll teach conflict resol res uh, resolution for social media? <laughs> I hope so because that would be amazing. It's like, it like, it's just going to be like, don't write the comments. That's going to be this like. But it's interesting because we think about, all right, like what's important now for a child to become quote unquote successful? How do you think about that? Or, or be equipped for the real world? Okay, some basic accounting, conflict resolution, maybe some Dale Carnegie sales courses in there, some emotional intelligence, some basic, like there are some things that if you look at curriculums, it, our world is changing. And I think something that I think we think a lot about too is you mentioned mental health, emotional intelligence, social media, technology. I, I know it's complicated. There's a lot of there's a lot of good with technology and social media, but when you mentioned conflict resolution and emotional intelligence, there seems <laughs> there there's a lot of art there and less science, although science supports that art, but it's that kind of worries me with this generation. You worry about your kids, like sort of fault, like the sort of social media pieces with the kids. Yeah. And I think uh, with kids, you know, I'm, I'm glad our kid was in school, but, you know, I think so much of growing up and becoming a young adult is learning how to have conflict, to be emotionally intelligent. Those are the things that need real world interaction and they, they need help. And I think you become dysfunctional as an adult. Mm -hmm. Like if you can't, we see it on Twitter, like I'm going to go there and say social media, like it's insane. And I think I'm going much bigger here. I think so much what I think a lot about, we, we live in a world, even though I think there's a silent majority, if you will, that I think is reasonable. We live in a world that's dominated by extremes, by tribalism, whether it's in social media or just media in general, and that's what plays. And there, there's no ability to have a this you're in the center of it a, a conversation where you're allowed to voice your beliefs without being screamed at or have a disagreement that seems to be civil and productive and i worry about that yeah no me too i mean i think we have we have a set of tools potentially for dealing with sort of like interpersonal conflict but i think when you're with another person there's an there's a sort of inherent sense that like I, it is like this, not for everybody, but for most people sort of like viscerally uncomfortable to be mean to someone's face. Whereas people have no problem being mean to someone effectively to someone's face over a sort of anonymous a computer. And I do feel like we haven't learned to manage. We don't have much in the way of tools to manage con conflict, meanness over that, that space. And, and it is not good for adults and potentially not good for kids. And so I, yeah, I mean, I share many of your concerns about that. And so, so much of, I remember as a kid, and I think we all remember, it's like, you just want to belong at the highest level, like kids happiness for better, or for worse. They want to belong. They, they want their tribe. They want their group. It's just, it's so critical. How, how do you think about the importance of belonging? You talk about this book and building kids' self-esteem. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of what comes out of the, the sort of literature there is first, just that's very important that sort of having a sense of belonging is something that that we all kind of crave and then there are some more specific things about how you can like help your kid have that and a lot of them have to do with thinking about what are the social environments that you're providing so so kids kind of for most kids their primary social environment will be some kind of school environment and for some kids that's great and they have a sort of belongingness there but for some kids they they don't find that at school but there are other places they can find that if it's an after school program if it's kids in the neighborhood if it's sports if it's 
camp. There's a lot of the research on sort of things like summer camp have to do with kind of that as an alternative sort of environment, particularly for if kids are struggling in some way. So I think there's kind of that piece of it, which is just thinking about other peer groups that could be generated. The other piece is really kind of recognizing the importance of the, the family support. So some of these studies around what is generating resilience in kids. So how do we, what are the things that that make you resilient, even in the face of bullying or something else at school? And a lot of the answer to that is that it's like, do you have a, a sort of safe, like comfortable home environment that when you're coming to, like you are supported there. And so I think that's, those are things I like those, both of those things, because they feel practical. And I think with a lot of this kind of like my kid is struggling emotionally, it can, or struggling socially in some way, it can just feel like, what can I do about that? But those are things that are, that you can do that you could help. So you've obviously done so much research and putting this book together. What was the biggest surprise in, in the research when you scratched your head say, wow, I, that's shocking. I think the, the piece that I found, like, I'm just like such a nerd. I love science. And like, I, I just like, so the piece that I was, I didn't know anything about was teaching people to read and understanding like how the brain processes reading. And it's not so much that I was surprised because I had no prior about it. I had no belief about it, but I just found it like incredibly interesting and exciting and also really informative about, you know, how we teach people to, to read. And so I'm sure as, as parents, you're always looking, you're always looking for advice. I'm curious, what's the best and worst parenting advice you've ever received? So I think the best parenting advice boils down to something like trying to think about that, which I think for me, it's kind of the, <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm like, I am a person who thinks too much. And I think recognizing that there are some things where it's like, it's just not that important. Like, don't think about it. You use your brain for other problems that you have. Don't use it for that one. I think that was very good advice. We got that very early on from our pediatrician. Kind of an awful lot of bad, bad parenting advice. I think the worst advice is kind of around trying to make your kid into something. Like you should encourage them to do blah. You should encourage them to wear these different kind of clothes because those clothes are cool in some way or do this activity because that activity is cool in some way. And I think there are that is an instinct we also often have as parents actually particularly around this sort of issue of belonging feeling like oh look well everyone else is you know know, wearing jumpsuits and i'll get you a jumpsuit and kind of recognizing like no maybe your kid's just not a kid who's doing that that's not their that's not their thing and and pushing them into doing that that is not going to make things better that is not a way to belong looking like other people doing the same things other that's not a way to belong uh the way to belong is to find the people who are like you more like you that you already click with. And so look, there's so much going on in the world and we're recording this in late June, 21, lots of things to talk about. Um, I'm curious, you know, what are you thinking about right now beyond this book and the book launch? Like what's driving you a bit nuts? What do you think could benefit from a little bit of a Emily Oster like approach and, and diving in? I'm sure there are things you're marinating on. Yeah. So I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about food and diet. I mean, this is your your sort of diet, how we know things about food, how we know things about diet, how we evaluate those kind of evidence, but also how we think about 
health and questions like people ask me a lot, like, well, BMI, like, is that a good measure? Is it not a good measure? Like, why do we have that measure? There's a, there are things like that where they've gotten sort of surfaced into like BMI is a thing that you should like objectively care about as opposed to sort of what it is, which is like a way to summarize a set of data that would be like helpful for putting out some reports. It's not that it's not correlated with some things, but just really un like, I think that we have a limited understanding of, of those kind of, kind of metrics. So I've been sort of marinating around, is there an interesting way to, to kind of bring together some of those thoughts and help people just understand that landscape, that landscape a little bit better. So food and health, food and, and nutrition. Health. Exactly. But I, I mean, I don't know. It's a really hard, it's a really hard data space. The data is like even worse. It, it, it is. And you're talking to the guy who has his aura ring, his whoop, right. his no, Fitbit, exactly. who gets 28 vials of blood every quarter with Frank Lipman and tracks everything and takes 20 supplements and all those yeah. things. And I so still there you go. <laughs> and, and it's, look, it, I'm like, it, it's complicated. Well, if you start that book, you'll finish in about 2035. No, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that book's going to be like, like 3,000 pages long. So I hope that we can have a longer podcast about that. <laughs> um, no, but it's, I mean, there's a sort of, I think exactly it is what, sort of what's challenging about that is that there's, there's so much in that space. And I think part of the limitations of our data there are reflecting that some things may work for some people and and not others. And we kind of understand that there's like groups that are health, there's like a sort of healthierness and a less healthiness and many behaviors differ. And yet when we try to isolate any individual behavior, it's very difficult to sort of find good evidence that many of these individual things work. And yet there must be some sort of package that is in some way working. And so I think that's what's interesting there, but also what's really hard. Right. So during COVID, some people looked to uh, you know, Fauci as their Bible, if you will. Some looked to the CDC. And then a lot of people looked to you. Yeah. And it, it was weird. And But I, I, ha I have an idea of why I think that that was the case. I'm curious, why do you think that was the case where you became this authority figure overnight where many people turned to you for yeah. So I think that I started, there were sort of some like practical things that were kind of helpful, which is that I had like started this Substack newsletter, sort of not intending that it would be about COVID because I started it before COVID. And then it sort of was a platform to speak to people who I think had already kind of bought into some of, to, had already were interested in the books and, and had sort of been interested in the approaches that I, that I was taking. But I, I think the thing that I did that was different from what some of these other places were doing was to try to help people think about risk benefit trade-offs and try to sort of put some of the decisions that they were making into, into context and actually not dissimilar to some of the differences between the books and the kind of more official recommendations to try to say like, Hey, there's a piece of this that's kind of a, about your individual decision-making and understanding the underlying aspects of the pandemic or understanding the underlying aspects of the data can be helpful in informing those decisions. And I think people were feeling, you know, really like a little bit lost and a little bit in a place where there were no good choices and somehow they were being told to do do one thing or not another thing. And, and there was no way to make those decisions. And so I think there was just a point in which some of the things I was saying kind of resonated in that little bit of that lost space. Yeah. And I would say that the lost space was vast <laughs> and 
It's just so interesting to see. Get, I'll timestamp this because the world's changing fast. It's June 25th of recording this, but everything from the lab leak theory being so politicized to many coming around on that. It, it's just, again, like one of my concerns there, a lot of people already had a distrust of the establishment, if you will, and medicine. And it's going to be interesting to see how history looks at this period. And I have the advantage, you know, I'm fortunate. I, I know all these amazing functional medicine doctors. I could ask any question I wanted about the vaccine. I'm fully vaccinated, so forth. But I have that advantage. You know, what do you think? What are the, I have a weird history. I'm just a genetic freak in that way. But it's just, uh, we're in an interesting yeah. time. No, it is a really interesting time. And I think that people, people have had a, a really hard time processing the messaging and, and had like a lot of really deep frustration with the, the sort of the way that some of the messaging has come out from sort of official bodies. And I think it's ended up feeling like very jerky in like one day it's like everyone's masked and then the next day it's like everybody take your masks off and people are like whoa whoa what and i think that 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 did not engender uh, a lot of confidence because of course underlying those changes there was some science and either some change in our understanding some new evidence like something presumably i would hope i mean but in many cases there was something underlying it but no one was told what that was yeah, it seems like we failed in terms of communication and common sense. For Colleen, my wife and I are, are two North Stars out of COVID. You were one of them. And then Bill Maher. Out of... Bill Maher. I like Bill Maher. I'm just like, Bill Maher out of nowhere. He eat a joke the other week where, okay, I, I, gotta, I walk into a restaurant, I, wear the, I have to wear the mask and then I take it off, but it doesn't travel when I... The, the, COVID doesn't travel in the air while I'm eating. It's, it takes a back seat. It's just... I think my favorite favorite one of these things was when the, like some, the sort of like NCAA was going to have football, but they were only going to have the bowl games. And somebody tweeted like, it's good that COVID knows which are the bowl games. You know, it's like, it was sort of this this weird... And, and the thing about that is like, of course, the reason for that, I mean, not so much the restaurant, but the reason for that is the idea that like, okay, some of these things are more valuable than others. And so we're willing to accept some risk. I wouldn't, I personally would not have put bowl games in that thing, but like in general, we could sort of say exactly. There's a lot of financial risk. There's the money side, (laughs) but you know, we could, we could sort of say like some things are more valuable to us. And so we're willing to do them, even though they have some risk. And there was very little willingness to acknowledge that element of choice, that kind of risk benefit trade-off. And so people just made the messaging very confusing. So I get the sense that you weren't necessarily looking to be on the national stage in terms of COVID and schools and guidelines and I follow you on social media and then like, holy cow, I remember there was a post you wrote for the Atlantic and then you had to apologize. It was just like insanity. And so how have you handled all all this? (laughs) You know, I think it was I am looking forward to it ending, to that aspect of it ending. I think there were pieces of this that that I really liked is maybe not the right word, but places where I felt like I was valuable to people, which was really gratifying. So the feeling of like, the feeling of sort of people thinking, hey, you like helped me make some good decisions, that part of the pandemic had some gratification. The piece about schools where I felt like there was nothing being done and we needed to do something to sort of fill in a gap that was kind of left by 
the largely the Trump administration. I was glad that we were able to do that, but it isn't something that I, it was not like an enjoyable piece of this because there's just so much political conflict and so much sort of like frustration and, and so much of a feeling like we're talking past each other and uh, people aren't sort of like saying they're following the science or not following the science. And I think that, or they are in a complicated way. And I think that piece of it was just, was just really different than I had expected and, and probably not a piece of this that I'd like to do again. Well, one of the most surprising, I, I remember the piece you wrote about essentially travel with your grandparents. Mm-hmm. I remember I reread it. My our Ethan Weiss, who's a friend, who's been on the show. I remember he was tweeting about it too. Like, it wasn't that it wasn't offensive, and people went bananas about. So, like, I, I go back to this larger point of I think it's I think most people are reasonable, and I go back to maybe I just am spending time worrying about it, and I shouldn't. But it seems like I, I feel like most people are reasonable people. That's the majority of people live in this country. And then you've got the extremes, but you've got the extremes who rule social media and troll. And it makes it hard for, I think, people who are reasonable and, and have a point of view, if you ask me, which is driven by data and kind of down the middle, it makes them hard, makes it hard for them to exist. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, that episode was interesting because it combined sort of some what I thought could have been good discussion. So some sort of, there were like, there were, I think, reasonable disagreements about exactly the way I had framed things and phrased them. And okay, so that that's like a discussion that we could have. And it is a discussion that I had in sort of more private arenas with, with people who disagreed in like a polite way. But then there sort of becomes a sort of second piece of it where you get these sort of more extreme forms and people trying to like almost demonstrate how committed they are to whatever is this sort of opposition by by their behavior and that's and then that's not helpful and then you're not making any progress you're just yelling yeah and it's like well, we don't want to cancel emily oster like that's a whole other cancel culture another issue. Well, you know, yeah. we don't want to have any i don't know i don't know how we're feeling about cancel culture but i don't want to be canceled no, I, nor should you. I, I don't think anyone wants to be canceled. That's another Bill Maher talking point every week. You should be on a show. Okay. <laughs> so I'm curious. So look, I think we all have to take care of ourselves to to do what we need to do. And I'm curious, what do you do to take care of yourself when you're stressed, when you're being trolled on social media, when you're trying to have a really thoughtful, data-driven, I would say, argument, a conversation when you're trying to write? Like, what do you do that allows you to do what you do best? Like, how do you take care of yourself? I mean, I think that my most important, like, self-care, as we were calling it, uh, is, like, running, is a sort of a form of, like, exercise. So I, I try to run almost every day outside, like, very early in the morning. And it's it has a sort of, it's not quite meditation, but it has a kind of meditative quality to just be, like, kind of out pretty alone in the semi-darkness. And most of the time, I don't even listen. Sometimes I'll listen to podcasts, but most of the times I'm just, like, like in my head, and I'll use it as time to plan things out or just kind of let let my mind go a little bit. And I think that's, that's something that I've done more in the, in the pandemic and has been really like important. I think partly also I have a very hard time like giving myself a a break to just be like, okay, I'm going to like take some time to just like for me just to sit or to read or whatever. 
this is a way to do that and to say, okay, I'm not going to like do email and work for that time, but to still feel like, okay, I'm doing something. And I like, it's an important exercise. Even, and so I think that's been my, that's like my biggest thing. So as I mentioned, so many people go to you for answers, whether you like it or not, people are going to you. I'm curious, who do you go to? Who do you respect? Who do you look up to when you're looking for answers? So, I mean, the person, this is like a, so I would say first my husband, because he is, because I, I like him, but also <laughs> he is like the most principled. He is like the most principled person that I have ever encountered. And he doesn't care at all about what other people think basically. And so things like people are trolling me on Twitter. He couldn't care less. I mean, of course, he doesn't want me to be sad, but he just like literally couldn't care less. He doesn't really understand what that means. He doesn't like, I told this thing about Instagram the other day. He was like, well, I want to see that story. And I was like, we have to be on Instagram to like see this story. He's like, well, I can't send a link to the story. I was like, I'm sorry. I can't like help you with this. But he's just like a person who is so outside of this. And that perspective is always really valuable because it's a lot of it's just being like, hey, can, like maybe you just like don't think about this that, that much because you're like here are these other things that are really important. So I would put him there. And, you know, then there are a lot of people that I go to for like sciencey answers, like sort of principled people that I have trusted in the pandemic and, and elsewhere. I'm curious, any names? I so really like what Ashish Jha says, who's actually happens to also be the dean of our public health school. But he's somebody who I think is, we do not always agree, but I find him very, I find him very thoughtful and usually kind of a, about Right. And so, as I mentioned numerous times, there's a lot going on in the world. Is there anything that is particularly concerning to you right now? And on the flip side, is there anything particularly exciting to you about where we sit in I'll timestamp on June 25th, 2021? Are we talking about in COVID? In Just COVID in general, a year, or any, yeah, I'm like, how could you, COVID's a big part of our, our <laughs> of, of the world right now, fortunately or unfortunately. So, I mean, I would, let me do the like hopeful piece of this first, which is a few weeks ago, I did, I did an interview with the, the guy who runs Moderna, which is one of the like mRNA things. And we spent a lot of time talking about kind of non-COVID technologies. And I got sort of very excited about the, the promise of some of the things that could come out of that kind of, that kind of technological innovation for sort of other illnesses in the long term. So I think that was something that was kind of like a... I know, for me is a promise. And I also, this is probably extremely naive, but I feel like that the kind of, there were many failures of the pandemic, but there were some real science wins and thinking about things like problems like climate change. I don't know. I mean, we managed to produce a vaccine for this totally novel virus and have like a year into it, have a lot of like hundreds of millions of people vaccinated. Like maybe we can use some of those brains to deal with some of these other, some of these other problems. So again, that's probably naive, but that's, that's something I, I guess I hope for. Maybe I've had a little bit more optimism. I worry, I mean, of course I worry the variants, things about COVID, but I also, I would say I worry at this point, way more about the kind of social fabric breakdowns of the last year and some of these issues of polarization and lack of debate and just like sort of thinking about how are we going to get out of this, like out of this place that we are in terms of how we're interacting with each other, how we're interacting across groups, like sort of inability to talk to each other across the aisle, whatever aisle that is. I think that's, I'm worried about that. Yeah, it's we have some issues. I am hopeful. 
I do think there is the silent majority. I really do of people who are in the middle who are reasonable people and desperately want that. They just don't show up on social media. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wonder that is the, how much is the debate going to be like, or the debate or the kind of public discourse about all these kind of questions that we're facing going to be ruled by the people who are loudest. Yeah. And and it's the other interesting, the way I think about this too, media plays a large role. And there was a tweet the other day, I thought it was interesting where someone showed the subscription growth of the New York Times Mm -hmm. during Trump. And the headline was the New York Times did amazingly well during the Trump administration. And if if you think about it, and this is the problem, and I'm not, New York Times is a fine institution. I'm not going to crap on the New York Times, but, you know, okay, totally makes sense. If you talk about how someone is so terrible every day and you know that your base leans left, they don't like them, you're that's, and then Fox is doing the same thing. It just, okay, we live in a world where if you're media and media has got their other issues that larger media companies have in terms of their business models, but it makes sense for them to talk to the extremes and that I'm like, oh, great. This is the world we live in now. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's like, there's a, there's a kind of the media company, we sort of understand the economics of, of the business. Like the goal of the media company is to sell media yeah. and they're selling to the audience that reads them. And that means that there's a kind of desire to, there's a, a business reason to sort of speak to the, this is actually what my husband's research is about. Really is oh, really? Paper is about very, like, is about the fact that like, basically what determines the slant of the media is the people that they're like the local people that they're speaking to. Yeah. Well, we'll get him on someday. We'll yeah. least, although he doesn't like, it seems like he doesn't really care to care for the yeah, media. Yeah, I don't so. think he follows you on Instagram. Let's put it that way. All, all, all good. So what do you think, COVID or non-COVID, do you know, what do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now? I think we'll still be doing some like COVID post-mortem. I think we'll be talking about some of the longer term impacts of, of this on everybody and sort of on the way that people process things mentally or otherwise. I think that'll be, I think that'll be still a piece of the conversation. And my guess is we'll be talking a lot about climate change. I think that's like, I think that's coming. I mean, it's here, but it's. So with climate change, I saw something the other day. I forget which, I watch all the cable news channels. Okay. Because I want to see. very balanced. Uh, well, I try. I want to know what everyone's saying. I do it right. less now and definitely not late at night, but Colleen and I did it around the election. Just like hearing all sides. I want to like- I, under- I was I, like on Fox. I want to like, I want to know, like, what are they telling people? What are people yeah, hearing? Yeah. And I look at everyone and look like no one's perfect in our media world. It's like everyone's got their point of view and I just want to understand everything. And I try to, well, with that said, one of the headline was both parties for different reasons we're are on board with climate change, essentially acknowledging it for, di- for different reasons. Yeah. So I'm like, who cares how we got there? But it's hard to ignore and it's kind of a huge issue. So I'm optimistic on that. So my last question, if you could go back in time when you, before you published your first book or you, you were starting or you had your pitch and you were starting to put together your, your book proposal, if you could go back and give yourself advice. What advice would that be? It's, it's inter- okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, like a long answer because I have often would answer that question and say that like the advice I would give is like, like wait to do this because the sort of blowback from the first book 
at my in my professional life was very extreme because I ended up like not getting tenure at the place that I was and having to to move jobs and and so on. So I sort of for a long time I thought the advice I would give myself is like don't do this now. Like you're making a you're making a mistake. But when I look back on it now I realize that actually like that this was like the best decision that I made because it it was in fact the thing that I wanted to do and it was the thing that I was good at and it and so so I think that I would tell myself this is going to be complicated but don't be afraid. That's very sage advice for anyone. It's going to be complicated but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Emily, thank you so much. Such an honor to have you and everyone go pick up the family firm and basically everything else you do. Go bu- go buy it. Thank Thanks. you. I'm so excited to do this. Thanks, Jason. Emily, welcome back. Thank you. I'm back. Here I am. <laughs> yeah. So this is a first as we've never done a two-part podcast. And when you and I first spoke on June 25th, uh, things were looking really good in terms of COVID coming to a close, but then came the Delta variant. And here we are recording again on August 2nd, and there is a different narrative to say the least. So how are you interpreting the data around the Delta variant? So I think the most high level thing that we can kind of all agree on is that it is much more contagious. And so I think that is driving a lot of what we're seeing is that this is just a much more contagious version of the virus. And so, you know, we talk about viruses in terms of this R naught. And I think, you know, if you sort of think about the R naught of the original one being like two or two and a half or something, this is like six or eight. So it's like, it's, it's just much more contagious. On the other hand, um, I think it, doesn't really seem like it's very different in any other way. So it's like the same thing, just way, way more contagious. And that's sort of how I'm framing a lot of how I'm thinking about it. And so how are you interpreting the data around Delta and those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated? So I think around the the people who are vaccinated, I am I am basically interpreting very optimistically. So we're now, you know, we are seeing some breakthrough cases, some cases in which people who are fully vaccinated are getting mild infections. This is what we expect. I mean, I think that like maybe we oversold, maybe we sold a bill of goods that was like not 100% true, like, or at least people heard, they heard policymakers saying, if you get the vaccine, you're like in a bubble that no coronavirus could ever touch you. And that's, of course, that's, that's not true. They shouldn't have thought that's true. It's not true. But it, it remains incredibly well protective against hospitalization and death, which is really what we are trying to do with vaccines. So I think there's like a huge sort of positive delta on how important vaccination is, because when the virus is very contagious, if you are unvaccinated, then you are very likely to get the virus. And so now you're much more likely to get the virus. And if you're unvaccinated, it's still really dangerous. It's still possibility of hospitalization and, and death, even if you're a healthy person. So there's like a huge additional value of uh, of, of vaccination here, which I think we've kind of missed a little in some of the discussions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because there was specifically a Washington Post headline, which the, the Biden administration went, uh, they were very upset about. So could, you, could we talk about what that headline was and the misinterpretation of, or the data, or just your perspective on that? Yeah. So somehow... The, the headline was something like vaccinated people spread as much as unvaccinated people or something like that. And I, I think what they, I, I think what's going on is that, that, of course, that's not, that is not true, um, is the first thing to say. And I think part of what happened is that what they're finding is among 
fully vaccinated people who have symptomatic infections with the Delta variant, there is evidence of a similar amount of viral material in their nasal passages as for unvaccinated people who are also symptomatic. And so I'm sort of very careful with how I frame that because that got turned into, they spread as much as unvaccinated people. And there's like seven assumptions between those two things, most of which are not true. So one is that kind of implies that they're equally likely to be infected, which is absolutely not true. The vaccines are about 80% effective against any infection at all, even with Delta. The second thing is we've drawn some direct parallel between the amount of viral material as detected in these PCR tests with these CTs and, uh, and the infectiveness, which is not necessarily direct, right? So we actually don't have direct evidence on viral transmission from vaccinated to unvaccinated or vaccinated people. We suspect that it could happen, but it's not like we're seeing that directly. So there were just a lot of leaps made there that I think made it seem like what we learned is the vaccines don't work, when in fact, what we learned was the vaccines do work. And I think that was just somehow like that got just reversed, that got reversed. Yeah, coming back to the data and the tale of two cities with the those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated, we talked about actually getting the virus, but what about hospitalizations? So the hospitalization data, we're seeing almost everybody who's hospitalized is unvaccinated. It's running, you know, above, like certainly above 95, I think in many places above 99% of the people hospitalized are, are unvaccinated. And when we are seeing hospitalized vaccinated people, they tend to be people who are either very elderly or have other immune compromised issues. So the other thing that's sort of happening in the background here is we're starting to, I think, get some suggestion that we may need to start thinking about boosters for the kind of frail elderly and immune compromised because of a variety of things. I think people don't all agree on that. But certainly if we think about the pattern of hospitalizations, it's just vastly in the direction of, of unvaccinated people at this point, reflecting the fact that the vaccines are just really, really, really good at preventing hospitalization and death. And so kids, kids, you know, kids, th th that's how you, that's how the firestorm developed, <laughs> I, I think, um, with your Atlantic piece. What about Delta when it comes to kids? You know, we're seeing kids are not relatively more at risk for Delta is how I would say it. So basically it's a more contagious virus, which means it is spreading more among all people, but it is not spreading relatively more among kids. And I think, you know, for me, probably the most, um, a reassuring piece of evidence that we have seen is out of the UK. So in the UK, they've sort of been, they're kind of coming, they so far coming down the other side of the, of the kind of Delta curve over this period in which they had this sort of Delta variant really circulating around in the, in the population, they had kids in school unmasked. So this like, this was like during unmasked, well, they don't mask the little kids. So they had unmasked kids and still you know, the, the kids sort of in the range where they can't be vaccinated. So the kids kind of up to age 11 saw very, very low rates. You know, they went up a little bit, but nothing like the kinds of increases in rates that they saw among young adults who were more likely to be vaccinated, by the way. And so we're just seeing a lot of evidence suggesting it's the same kind of story with kids, that they aren't getting very seriously ill. They aren't uh, at their very, 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 very low risk for mortality from this. And you know, they can be infected, but again, sort of low, low risk. The best way to protect them is surround them with vaccinated adults. And they were unmasked, which actually is quite interesting. I didn't realize that that, that was the, a wrinkle in that data. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, so 
Uh, look, I know you're a professor of economics. I know everything. You're you're grounded in data, which which I very much appreciate. But if you had, if you had to make a prediction here, where <laughs> I think we've all given up on making predictions yeah. here. But like, what where, where do you where do you think we're going to be this fall winter? Like, how do you see this playing out? So I, um, I mean, I think it's really hard. It's really hard to predict. I think we will see a pretty bad period in places with low vaccination rates over the next few weeks. I think there's just no getting around that. I mean, we're already seeing that that's not much of a prediction as a statement of, of reality. If what we have seen in the UK is, can, is right, and I think, or is reflected here, the virus, this variant is so infective that we may be on the, on the bottom, on the sort of way down in September. Um, just simply because everyone will have had it already, or at least the, I mean, I think that's not the only interpretation of that UK data, but one interpretation is that basically a huge share of people have antibodies at this point because the virus is so infectious and that, you know, ultimately that's kind of the the way down. So I think that, you know, that's one prediction, but I don't know. It's hard to tell. Um, my last question, is there anything you're going to change on a personal level? Um, I started, you know, I, I think if I were a person who went to a lot of, um, like substantial indoor partying activities, but who's I might, doing that now? <laughs> I don't know, but I, did you see the picture? I was looking at pictures of Lollapalooza to be fair, that's outside, but you know, people are, I mean, that's what happened in Provincetown, right? That was, you know, they were like, it was like a lot of like very crowded basement parties. Um, uh, so I think if I were doing a lot of that, I would, I would do less of it. Um, you know, I have actually I've been a little bit more careful. I was a little more careful the last few weeks because my I was trying to get my kid off to sleepaway camp, which she ended up going to. But I was very anxious about getting any kind of illness that would prevent her from going to sleepaway camp. So I started wearing a mask again in the grocery store, which I probably do anyway. But that's kind of about that's about it. Got it. Got it. Well, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to come back for uh, a part two. Uh, appreciate your grounding in data and give us giving us an update there. And uh, congrats again on, uh, on the book. Um, and, and just thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me back.